Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 90, Revelation, the Beast from the Earth. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, where John describes for us a second beast, this one rising out of the earth. And as we'll see when we look at this particular beast, its primary function is to support the worship of the first beast, the beast rising out of the sea, which we know from Revelation 12 and then the first few verses of Revelation 13 that that beast is directly connected to the dragon and to Satan himself. And so what we'll see when we look at this second beast, this beast from the earth, is we'll pay particular attention to economic and religious type things that get connected in strange ways to political realities and to the realities of empire and how dangerous a connection that really is in society. And then I'm going to try to do my best to compare and contrast the way that John intends us to see ourselves as the church, as a contrast society to the one that's being portrayed um, through the beast from the earth. And so I am looking forward to this episode. We've got a lot to cover, but let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, as I said in the introduction, we do have quite a bit to cover, and I just want to dip back for a moment into a past several episodes and to remind you of a couple of things. And the first is that in Revelation 12, we were given a very clear picture that among all of the battles and temptations of this world, our ultimate enemy is Satan himself, who presented himself as Jesus's ultimate enemy. And as John's um, grand Christian myth, uh, the narrative that we read in Revelation 12, as it made very clear, the dragon has in fact attended and turned all of his attention and his hatred and his wrath toward those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so we know that the dragon is infuriated that he has been humiliated and defeated by Jesus himself, particularly through the cross and then the resurrection, and turns his attention toward the followers of the lamb who John tells us will conquer the beast 
in the, or the dragon rather, in the same way that our Savior did. And so what happens in Revelation 13 is for you and for me to realize that because the dragon pulls the strings behind the first beast, it's necessary for us to realize he is still choosing to attack the church. It's just that he is doing it now in squirrely and wily kinds of ways. And the two beasts that John presents to us are two different ways, at least evidently looking different on the outside, but they really work together. And both ways are ways in which the dragon seeks to seduce and lure the church away from its actual faithful witness to the Lamb to the one seated on the throne, as the revelation has calling all Christians to do. And as we looked at the first beast, we recognized that it is this Roman imperial power. It is this mighty militarized empire, uh, politicized, however you want to think about it. Ultimately, the Christians throughout history, but particularly in the Roman Empire, at the hands of Nero, no less, that we looked at in the first several verses of Revelation 13, Christians feel the physical overt persecution and hatred and control that the Roman Empire communicated in the time that John was writing this. In fact, as we looked at, John himself was exiled on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The very same things that were told the dragon seeks to um, attack attack the church for. And so John's giving an explanation of why he's exiled and he's exhorting his churches not to cave under the threat of persecution, which we looked at in all of the letters to the churches in the first couple chapters of Revelation. But here with a second beast, there's a different form that trouble or difficulty might take. And what we need to remember is that since the first beast is controlled by the dragon, and the second beast's function is to point people toward the worship of the first beast, then we know that the dragon's hand is still involved in the things that we're about to discover take place through the second beast. And that's important to realize as we get started. And so as I was gathering notes, these are things I've been thinking about actually for years. And I've got some journal entries of things I'm thinking about reading and lots of books that I've worked through and reworked through and I'm sort of just collecting my thoughts. And so before I got started, um, before I get started th this week, I thought I would just let you know what I'm about to share is, is kind of pulled from a lot of sources and I want to give credit even though I might not quote these um, authors or I might quote them, but I want you to know um, the book in the interpretation commentary series, um, the book of Revelation by Eugene Boring is an outstanding book that I'm going to use while we, while we do our podcast today. Theology of the Book of Revelation by Richard Bauckham, which you've heard me reference numerous times, as well as A Slaughtered Lamb by Gregory Stevenson. The Triumph of the Lamb by Dennis Johnson. Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman, who we had on the podcast several weeks ago talking about his book. And then a, a new book that I read not too long ago is called Scandalous Witness by Lee Camp. So tuck those away. If you would like to pursue Revelation anymore, I, I would highly recommend all six of those actually as great books to begin. But I think what I'd like to do here is to just dive right in and we'll just sort of go through the passage. I'll make some observations. I want to give us context about what this was like for John in his time. And then I want to maybe make some historical references of ways to help us connect this. And then I do want to talk about our setting and how I think Revelation 13 
can communicate into our own day just as powerfully as it once did in John's. And so um, I'm going to start off by just some observations that Michael Gorman makes in reading Revelation responsibly, but he wants us to understand this relationship here with this first beast and the signs that it's performing and it's pointing all the people of the world to worship the first beast and it's encouraging them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And we saw in Revelation 13 that this wounding by the sword and yet lived, that was in fact a reference to Emperor Nero and the emperor of Rome is the embodiment here that the first beast that the first beast takes. And so what's happening here, especially as it relates to worship, is it's now not only the first beast drawing people to worship the dragon through worshiping the first beast, but here this second beast draws people's attention to worship the first beast, which then we know is ultimately still worshiping the dragon. It just takes a slightly different form. And so what Gorman points out, and I think is very, very true, he said, put simply, the imperial cult was an elaborate God and country phenomenon, or it was a type of civic or civil religion. And if you listened to our conversation, Dr. Gorman expounded a number of things on civil religion, which I think were very helpful. And I'll just try to pick up on that conversation in this episode but what happened with through this second beast is that in various ways, it attributed a sacred character to the Roman Empire and to the emperor himself. And so Gorman says that this cult was the concrete manifestation of an ideology, a political theology, if you will. And it says it centers around three main ideas. Number one, that the gods have in some sense chosen Rome, that Rome and its emperors are the agents of the God's rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings, that Rome manifests the God's blessing, security, peace, justice, faithfulness, fertility, among those who submit to Rome's rule. Now, this is ultimately the function of the second beast. And if you listened to the description as I read it, it says that this beast was allowed to make signs. It was allowed to work in the presence of the beast to deceive those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It's really interesting that this second beast, which Revelation will later call the false prophet, um, we see this in chapter 16, verse 13. And we also see this in chapter 19, verse 20. So you have, as I shared in last episode, you have this unholy trinity. You have the holy trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And in Revelation, you have the dragon, you have the beast from the sea, and then you have this beast from the earth, but this beast from the earth is also called the false prophet. So you have this unholy trinity, this dragon, beast, false prophet, and it's contrasted with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But the idea here, if you really look at what this second beast does, this false prophet, his prophetic activity relates to the whole world. Well, so does the church's prophetic activity from Revelation 11 when they are led by the Spirit, not the false prophet. Um, he performs signs according to chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, as do the witnesses in Revelation 11, verse six. 
This beast makes the world worship the first beast, which is tantamount to worshiping the dragon, just as the career, and this is Bauckham here, just as the career of the two witnesses brings the world to worship God, including no doubt the worship of Jesus, which in Revelation is the same as worship of God. And so whereas the two witnesses do all of this by the power of truth, the false witness, false prophet, does it by deceit and by coercion. And so you see an actual contrast that John intends for us to pick up. And so I I want to bring this into play, number one, because we've already looked at Revelation chapter 11 and any of John's listeners, hearers to this letter would have already heard those words prior to Revelation 13 being spoken about. This is not some random, oh my goodness, who's the second beast? Who's the first beast? No, no, everybody knew what John was talking about. And John is attempting to show the ways in which the dragon wants to usurp the place that belongs solely to Jesus and the way in which he chooses to seduce Christians by that appeal. And if you're following along in the podcast, I did choose this particular week to insert another bonus episode. And I did that because I want you, as you're listening to this episode, to keep in mind the way that we actually, as Kingdom of God citizens, think about political reality because it's important. And the way that the second beast blurs the line between economic prosperity and religious ideology and blends it seamlessly into political and empire reality is what the dragon has been up to ever since John first wrote this. And we really, really need to understand it. And the best way to start is to realize that the first beast is this monstrous, you know, it has so many heads and so many horns. Well, look at the second beast. Look at verse 11, if you're following along. This second beast had two horns like a lamb, And it spoke like a dragon. Now, don't just picture, oh, here are two different animals. Now let's ponder. We know the imagery of a lamb. We know this image. We've seen it. We know Jesus exclusively in Revelation by the title of the lamb. I mean, this literally is the title that is given to Jesus 28 times in the book of Revelation. So when John drops this phrase here, it looks like a lamb because it has these two horns, but it speaks like a dragon. Think about that for a second. Uh, This, again, is called the false prophet, right? And so the first beast is very proud and boastful. His boasting is is overt and coercive, right? It's just he's going to manipulate people. He's going to force them to do what he wants. But the influence of this second beast is covert and it's deceptive. So if the first beast is aggressive, right, the second beast is passive-aggressive, It has the appearance of being soft-spoken and humble, but it's manipulative. And it is ultimately a controlling tactic to get people who don't see through your games to do what you want. Have you ever been in any kind of relationship with someone who is passive-aggressive? It is covert. It's covered in some way, but it is just as manipulative. It just doesn't give off the brash, domineering stance that overt relationships actually give off. 
So you can see these in interpersonal relationships and you can see these at a, uh, at a community level. You can see these at a national level. And that's ultimately what's going on here with this second beast. And so we're told that, you know, John the Baptist, for instance, I, I think in a strong way, this could be a counterfeit John the Baptist, um, except is not sharing the spirit and power of Elijah. Um, like Elijah at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, this false prophet calls down fire to fall from heaven, but he uses this wonder to promote worship of the beast rather than calling the people to worship the true God as Elijah did. Or you might say this particular false prophet like the Egyptian magicians who managed to simulate a few of the mighty signs that God gave to Moses presents imitation wonders to lead earth's people astray after the beast. And so what you see here as again, a subtle ploy of the dragon is that the beast from the earth is the sea beast's religiously oriented accomplice. And this is where things get incredibly difficult. And again, why I would highly encourage you to listen to bonus episode five, A Kingdom Like a Mustard Seed, if you have not already done so, because we have to separate this political reality from the kingdom of God reality. And any failure to do that and to see clearly into those realities will make reading Revelation 13 completely unreadable for us. We won't have any idea what's really going on, and I want us to know what's going on. And so this false prophet's lying wonders, they support the first beast's you know, arrogant boasts and slanders against God. And so you see this all the time. Um, you can see it, I guess, in so-called secular states or governments that they oftentimes can claim for themselves sort of like quasi-divine powers or issue quasi-divine promises of salvation to their loyal and believing subjects. You know, such states don't have any qualms at all about exploiting religious establishments in the interests of civic loyalty and cultural conformity. Now I'm drawing a little bit on Dennis Johnson's from The Triumph of the Lamb, and I really like the way he says that there. But people who have their allegiance to another king, King Jesus, or, you know, are going to be seen as um, uncivil in the way that they refuse to worship the, the, the state symbols or in the ways they refuse to bow the knee and to blend their religious loyalty to the loyalties of the state or to the loyalties of the nation or, or what have you. And we'll get into some more specifics about that as we go. I do want to point out that it isn't just religious. It's also enforcing the economic policies of the empire. And we're told in verses 16 and 17 that this um, there's going to be on small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Um, I've decided to devote an entire episode just to that, to the mark of the beast, looking at the religious ramifications, looking at the economic ramifications, and making the connections that John wants his hearer readers to make based upon the comments he has already given us through the first 12 chapters of Revelation. And so my goal, unless something crazy happens, is to uh, try to address that in, um, in next week's episode. But I do want to draw your attention to the fact that in verses 14, 15, and 16, we have this many times repeated word image. 
Um, this beast is telling the, those who dwell on the earth to make an image for the beast that was wounded. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And John is wise with language and we know image. We've known image from chapter one, um, page one of the Bible. Uh, man and woman were made in the image of God. We are the representations of of God on the earth and Jesus himself was the image of the invisible God and the church itself is now through the Holy Spirit, the very body, the very image, the very face of Jesus as Jesus is the very embodiment and the very face of God himself. And so it is, it is in fact this Trinitarian reality that the church, that the Christians, that the followers of the lamb get sucked into. We get invited to participate in the life that is experienced between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is the fun reality that I always think when I read Revelation is that at the end of the addresses to each of the seven churches explicitly, we know these are words from the risen son of man speaking to the churches. And yet every one of the letters ends with he who has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus does in fact communicate with his people through the spirit. And as we're seeing with the false prophet here, this second beast, it is drawing everyone's attention back to the first beast. And I think the, the best way I know how to understand that is with this idea of image. And, and, and think about an image for just a minute. It's just a physical representation or manifestation of someone's power, throne, and great authority. So let's use this one right here, okay? So we've got the beast, the dragon gives the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. And we looked at this last week knowing that Revelation addresses issues like power, throne, and great authority as it relates to the one seated on the throne in Revelation 4 and the lamb who shares that power, throne, and great authority with him. But here we have this idea of image and it's a physical representation or manifestation. And so in chapter 16 of Revelation, it says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And there's our connection that this third component here, this second beast is in fact the false prophet. Um, and we saw that the dragon, the beast and the, the, and the false prophet form this unholy trinity. And so the idea for us today is that the Holy Spirit and the community that he indwells, which is the church, is a contrast community with the false prophet and the community that he indwells, which according to um, Revelation 13, um, where is it? Verse 14 is to deceive those who dwell on the earth. And we've talked about this before. This is in fact code for all of the nations. Those who don't dwell in heaven, that's um, the, the saints and those who, who worship the lamb. But those who dwell on the earth, this is not talking geography. This is talking identity. Um, where does your identity reside? Does it reside in the heavens with the lamb seated next to him there? Or does it reside on the earth and you take your cues from what you see down here on the earth? But the point then is that the false prophet builds a following on deception and coercion. The Holy Spirit builds a following on truth. The false prophet's community offers the world an image of the beast 
and calls those who dwell on the earth to worship it. The Holy Spirit's community, the church, offers the world an image of the Lamb and calls those who dwell on the earth to worship Him. This is really what is going on as John is describing for us the ways in which the dragon tries to seduce the world into believing that these political realities and these entities and these nation states and these governments are in fact a better embodiment of God, quote unquote, than anything that these Christians are offering. And John wants us to know, as he knew in his first century context, that these things are very alluring. They are very tempting. They're very, very tempting to believe that the ways in which God would choose to work in this world would be through powerful structures. And if you really want to get ahead in life, you could get on board with the power structures and many, many people believe that they'll be able to keep their faith in Jesus separate from how tempting it is to find themselves in places of power. The enemy knows all of this. He knows all of this. And so he sets people up for a belief that they'll have no problem navigating the two. And John is saying to his people, I want you to see what this actually is. It might sound good. It might look appealing, but it is beastly in nature and it is totally destructive. And I want you to understand just how complicated matters become when you combine political powers with the lamb and his followers, people genuinely do not know who or what they are worshiping when they are called to offer allegiance, right? And so let me, let me just give you an example. Let's think about this for just a second. When we think about governments, when we think about national idolatry or religious symbolism or national identity, or for us, what does it mean to be an American? You know, what does it mean to be a uh, part of the, the British empire? What does it mean to be an African? You know, what does it mean to be someone who is part of a, of a national identity? And when you think about governments or you think about religious governments, if you will, which is what Rome became, it had high priests who would offer certain sacrifices and then honor, you know, offer the protection of Rome for those who submitted in these religious ways that would have religious ceremonies. But think for just a second, if you would, and a good friend um, that I um, have gotten to know over the years pointed this out to me several years ago now, and it's really, really helpful um, but, but I want you to think about religious governments for just a second or what Michael Gorman so well calls just civil religion. And then I want you to think about how similarly governments in nation states or in nations and religions both express themselves or in the words of my friend, how they perform their roles. They both have songs that they sing symbols, statues, monuments, ritual ceremonies, sacred halls, sacred texts, robed interpreters of said texts, foreign crusades, and a creation foundation story of some sort. At the end of the day, government officials are employed in the name of something higher than they are, something that is quite difficult to quantify much like the idea of God. 
One can point at buildings and law books, but we cannot point at a government. It is in some sense above us or over us. And in an even truer sense, it in some way rules us. It sounds an awful lot like God, doesn't it? It should because it's very, very similar. And this is what John is getting at. In the Roman Empire in the first century, these religious cults and these religious gatherings and these religious um, meeting spaces and procedures and practices and songs and symbols and, and sacred texts and all the rest were very, very difficult to separate from the military power that Rome would provide you if you properly went through the religious ceremonies according to the Roman way. That's civil religion. That is mixing, believing that the gods themselves exercise their will through the emperor, through the empire, and the military and the might and the strength that that empire provides for the people is in fact a sort of sense of the blessings of God. It gets very seamlessly blended, and that's one of its biggest difficulties. And so I want to help us think through this um, because I want you to, to process this in such a way that it is helpful for us. Um, and so what I want to do is go back just several years ago um, you know, to m modern history, I guess, just one example, um, from more recent history for us about the dangers, the actual dangers that you and I can see in our own known history. Uh, I'm going to begin not even with something that has much to do with America, at least not, not directly, um, but many of you would know um, how rough World War II actually was, um, particularly for the Jewish people. But I want you to hear something, and, and I got this from Tim Mackey and his um, Exploring My Strange Bible, and, and I do want to give Tim credit for this. I, I listened to his episode in the Daniel series several times, and this one particular illustration stood out, and I would just like to quote him here because what he says um, was helpful, and he actually is quoting someone else when he, when he spoke this, this sermon. But um, Balder von Schirach was like the ideal German youth. And he joined and served in the Nazi party when he was 18. And within eight years, he became the head and the architect of Hitler Youth, which was a social experiment of indoctrinating a whole generation of German youth in the ideology of the Nazi government. Now, he was so successful as architect of Hitler Youth that he was elevated to state secretary. And so he became a close personal counselor of Adolf Hitler. There's a famous interview that Balder did with the London Times a number of years before World War II broke out. And here were some of the final words of that interview, which echoed hauntingly over Europe as the years went by. These are the words of, of Balder von Schirach. One cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. But an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany, serves God. 
Now, I don't have to speak too much longer to you about the absolute horror that transpired several years after these words were spoken. Arguably, this horror was already happening. But I want you to notice that it was happening in the name of God. God was being drawn upon and in the religious settings of Germany in the 30s, in the 40s, and in the 50s, well, not in the 50s for for Bonhoeffer, but I'm sure this continued. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor who was at pains to attempt to explain to church-going Germans that Hitler was bad news. And the church in Bonhoeffer's day didn't see it. They did not see it. They saw Hitler as an economic savior for them. That is the way they saw it as it was unfolding. Now, 50, 60 years later, 70, we have the ability to look back on that. And I don't know anyone alive today who would, who would assess that as anything less than an absolute abominable, nightmarish hell. But you need to listen to Balder von Schirach's words because he's connecting Germany's power and Germany's greatness with God. There's no separation there. They've become one in the same. This is a classic example in more modern history of precisely civil religion. It's the beast from the earth. It's the false prophet blending seamlessly, right? Pointing people to the worship of what? The empire, What was that message pointing people toward the greatness of Germany? Now, we're not here to identify, well, then Germany's the beast and Rome's the beast. No, no, no. These are ideologies. John was writing to a first century context who, in fact, had a manifestation of the dragon's workings in his own time. But you and I live at a time where the Roman Empire is no longer the monster or no longer the beast, right, that it once was. Instead, our world is always filled with new, twisted, dysfunctional, false prophet-type embodiments of empire, nation-states, powers, um, institutions, you name it, where when religion is used as a support for the greatness of those entities— Those entities then begin speaking as if they are God or as if they will bring salvation or as if they will bring the hope for the world. And they are using God almost as a justifier that the kinds of things they are doing are actually in line with what God wants for the world. And what happens when you marry them very specifically to one particular empire is that you must view the rest of the empires of the world as less than you. You are the true spokesman for God and his ways in the world, and you feel fully justified and completely blind to all of the destruction and the horrid nature of the violence and murder and oppression and racism and classism and brokenness that sends out through the world. But as long as it doesn't affect you, you don't see it. This is the damaging effects of civil religion. And it is alive and well in the world. Now, I chose to use an example um, from 
somewhat modern history, but one that is, you know, outside of our um, particular empire here in America, because it, it's easy to see this. It's easy to look outside of our own place and to recognize the, the faults and the failings um, of other nations, of other people groups. And we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast, and that is that it is always easier to see the sin and fallenness and brokenness in the world outside of us than it is to truly open up ourselves personally and with vulnerability for the Spirit to expose the things in us that really aren't what they ought to be. Because, of course, the moment you do that, you really do put yourself at the mercy of God. And many people are quite uncomfortable with that, Um, sadly, oftentimes even in churches. And so um, what I do want to remind us of, though, is that you know, what we're not looking for here, it, John's not talking to us in code language or steno symbols or whatever. So we're not really trying to decide what the beast from the land represents, you know, whether it's the Roman governor or, you know, the Roman priesthood or false Christian prophets and teachers, whatever. The, the beast really has characteristics of all of those things. And so everybody who supports or promotes the cultural religion in, inside or outside the church, however lamb-like they may appear, are going to be agents of the beast. They're going to be subtly manipulative ways that the dragon is trying to seduce the followers of Christ into worshiping something other than the lamb and his self-sacrificial compassionate ways. And so all propaganda that entices humanity to idolize human empire is an expression of this beastly power that wants to appear lamb-like. It wants to look like a lamb, but when it opens its mouth, it breathes forth death. That's the idea that John's trying to describe in these opening verses of our section here um, from Revelation 13. And so when we're told in verse 18, you know, let the one who has understanding, and like I said, we'll get to this in the Mark of the Beast episode, but um, it challenges our interpreters, you know, modern interpreter not to historical decoding, but to discern where in our own time propaganda is used to idolize political power. And I want you to just stop and think about that for a minute. Again, our political climate in this country is incredibly high. What type of propaganda is being used to idolize political power? to make political power the answer to what is causing problems. And it's not just propaganda, but I want you to hear the ways in which religion is oftentimes drawn upon in order to support the cause of the political power. And so while we started with an example from Rome and then we moved on to a more modern day example with Germany, I'd like now to take the same period of time World War II, and I would like to read to you another example of civil religion, which again is an improper mixing of politics and religion. So Franklin D. Roosevelt prayed this over the radio on D-Day, June 6th, 1944. Here is what he said. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. 
they will need thy blessings for the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. Now, I'd like to pose just a handful of questions and actually wrote down several questions and sentences here in a journal entry when I first came across this. Question, where does the kingdom of God begin here and the kingdom of America end? On what grounds is the United States' crusade part of God's kingdom? In whom are we placing our faith? God, our sons, each other, or in our united cause? It gets a little bit confusing, doesn't it? This is civil religion. It's an inseparable blending, inseparable blending of two kingdoms into one, an American kingdom and the kingdom of God. And the American kingdom claims to be upholding righteousness. Really? Now, we know that there were atrocities taking place in World War II. I am not denying that for a second. But I want you to realize that then notice what we are saying. We are doing the exact same thing as a nation that Germany did as a nation. We are calling upon the name of God in support of everything that we are doing. You might think we had better reason than the Germans to call upon God to come to our justification for everything that we were doing. But the moment you make that decision, you have connected them as Franklin D. Roosevelt has done. And so are, is it the pride of our nation are the sons who fight for us? I mean, is this what Peter meant when he called the church a royal priesthood and a holy nation? Have we forgotten that in Christ, people from every tribe and language and people and nation have been ransomed for God and made into a kingdom? Now, while this truth apparently is not self-evident, what it means is that those who've been ransomed by the lamb become members of his own kingdom and no longer find their identity in geographically structured kingdoms, but in God's kingdom. America as a nation, though, as a kingdom, as an empire, is geographically structured. And therefore, it's not on par with the kingdom of God. The lamb actually obliterated the geopolitical idea of God's favor resting on any one particular people group. But some people speak today as if God has simply directed his gaze toward America in the same way that he directs his gaze toward Israel. But to believe that means that we ignore entirely the New Testament teaching that people from every tribe and language and people and nation have been made priests to our God. There are many people in America who do not claim the lamb as their king. They do not live out the lamb's ways. They do not even want to. And as such, what they stand for, however noble it may appear, is not the honor and glory of Christ. It is not the expression of the kingdom of God. They are not conquering the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony because we are very much, in fact, loving our lives 
and seeking to prevent death at all costs. That's what war is. That's what war does. If you do not feel this being sticky, you're not awake. This is extremely sticky. This is extremely important to point out because in some people's minds, there has been a blending. And we've talked about this at times with the myth of a Christian nation. It is a massive myth. It is a myth. It is not true. It is deceitful because then we believe that America somehow is doing God's will and God's work in the world. And it has led us to justify all sorts of atrocious behaviors. Sadly, though, in the churches that I've been a part of growing up, we don't ever talk about the the tragedies and the horrors of the oppression of people who don't look like me or those who don't have the same socioeconomic status as me. Instead, we only highlight all of the parts of the American militarized way that have in fact benefited us. And so you'll hear people today who get upset that people don't stand for the flag and honor our troops and all the freedoms that you've been granted. Sure, some people have been granted freedoms. Other people have not. What do you do When a war breaks out between nations and Americans think that God is on their side and another nation thinks God is on their side and yet the Lord's side is not on a particular nation. He has care for everyone and literally has Christians in both of those nations. Is it the Lord's will that one of his people would slay and murder another? No, Absolutely not. But we have so bought into the idea of the myth of redemptive violence that violence is the only way to bring about truth. And so we grab God and use him to support our endeavors. We don't even have a category for this. John's inviting us to realize the reason we don't is because we're all being manipulated by the dragon. This is a real thing. It's actually real. And this is not a conspiracy theory. I don't have a vendetta against America. Not not, not at all. John is calling to the churches. He's writing Revelation to the churches to call them out of the idolatry and waywardness that manipulates people. And for some of us, we might need to look back on our own history and hear some of the ways that these things are spoken about so that we can identify where the idolatries are. And Lee Camp, in his book, Scandalous Witness, does a masterful job of this. It's a short little punchy book. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. But I'm going to just read a couple things that he points out. The first inaugural address of 1801, Thomas Jefferson referred to the United States as, quote, the world's best hope. Now, that sounds simple enough, but let's go on. In 1862... In the State of the Union Address, Abraham Lincoln called the preservation of the Union of the United States through the Civil War, quote, the last best hope of Earth. Woodrow Wilson, following World War I, said, quote, at last, the world knows America as the savior of the world. And then in 2019, President Donald Trump in his State of the Union address, insisted, quote, we must keep America first in our hearts. We must keep freedom alive in our souls. And we must always keep faith in America's destiny. 
that one nation under God must be the hope and the promise and the light and the glory among all the nations of the world. Now, I want to repeat myself. When you blur religion with nation-state ideology, it gets confusing. Who is the hope of the world? Where does the light and the glory among all the nations of the world belong? It belongs to the Lamb. And just deciding to slap on the word Christian before the word America does not make America's ideologies Christian. It does not make America's ideologies in line with the Lamb. In fact, I would say it is the perfect example of the second beast drawing people's attention through religion, through religious services, through these kinds of speeches which blend seamlessly the ideas of as have been the case for numerous presidents, that America is a city, shining city on a hill. No. Matthew chapter 5 tells us very explicitly that citizens of the kingdom are the city shining on a hill. The moment you think that just because there are some Christians in the country, that the country itself becomes that, means that you do not understand the relationship between the kingdom of God and kingdoms of this world. And Lee Camp goes on to point out hope, which is a word that numerous of these presidents have used in the past. Hope is first and foremost a theological category. And when such theological categories are exploited for the sake of the nation state, hope has been bastardized. And I said that Lee Camp writes a punchy little book, and that's what I mean. American hope, he says, is a bastard. It is this uncivil wedding between two unlike entities that are meant to remain distinct. And the moment you blur them, you have been duped by the dragon himself through the false prophet, the beast from the earth, who points people's direction to some big empire and all of its military strength and all of its promises of freedom. You, you realize in the way that nations speak about themselves, they're always using language that the Bible um, promises Jesus has come to bring people right? Like we, we're a nation built on freedom. Well, freedom, Paul says in Galatians that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So if we just needed to be a strong military to gain our freedom, then we certainly did not need Jesus dying on a cross in humiliation in order to bring us freedom, right? But America doesn't talk in terms of the, the, the hidden background that John so quickly brings forward when he, real, when he helps us see the dragon is what is behind this. And if it's not overt, uh, uh, obtusive obstruction of persecution, right? Oh, well, then we'll just flip the tables and we'll just let religion be talked about seamlessly with the country. Ah, so that no one thinks dragon-like things are really going on from the nation. In fact, they'll think they're god-like things going on. It's a brilliant strategy. And it's twisted and despicable and gross. And so Gorman goes on to talk about civil religion. And I just, for, for lack of the fact that he just says it better than anybody, I just want to read several quotes that he gives right through um, several pages of his book. One foundational 
theopolitical conviction, he's talking now about America's civil religion. He's talking about the way in which our country, from its beginnings all the way to the present, has found ways of bringing religion into its nation-state concerns. This is what John's addressing. So I just want you to listen to Gorman here if you, if you weren't able to track with him when he said it the first time, but I, I'm trying to make this as clear as I can. One foundational theopolitical conviction or sacred myth is exceptionalism. The idea that the United States has a unique place in God's plan, that it is in some sense chosen. Again, the idea of chosen that's uh, an election term. The Bible uses that quite regularly. But I have, I have, have friends, uh, people that I, I love who think this. And we obviously have to agree to disagree, but I'm not picking on our country as if it's somehow a problem or I'm not calling it the beast. What I'm trying to say is any time that a particular political entity for any reason – lays claim to religious ideals, they draw people in who once held to those religious ideals and those people then are blinded by seeing what is actually going on in the name of religious things. And any Christian, again, the community of the spirit who is built on truth should be interested in knowing the whole truth about all that actually transpires. And sadly, right now, in our country, what is today, July 29th, sadly, in our country, there is a lot of um, unrest going on, even in churches, amongst a white Christian population that is not so sure they are ready to embrace the truth of history as it relates to the ugly stain of racism and sexism and classism and the way wealth has made its way very comfortably at home in churches in this country, and no one says boo about it. And now that a culture as a whole are bringing these issues to the surface, the Christians need to be among those who are interested in all the truth, not just the parts of the truth that make us look good. And I say this as a white male so I'm not picking on anybody but myself, but I'm inviting people in to the truth of the world, the realities here, and I'm calling us out of getting sucked in to these ways of looking at the world that, that improperly blend religion and politics. So back to Gorman. This belief in an exceptional role to spread freedom is the backbone of America's national religion. Arising from its myth of innocence, which is the myth that America always operates in the world according to the highest principles of ethics and justice, and that when criticized or attacked, America is the innocent, righteous victim. Next comes extreme patriotism, extreme love of country, and even nationalism, the belief that one's nation-state, in this case the U.S., is superior to all other nation-states. Nationalism is extreme devotion to one's country as the greatest nation on earth and therefore worthy of nearly unqualified and sometimes thoroughly unqualified allegiance. This devotion is often based on the conviction that the nation is chosen, blessed, and commissioned by God 
its power and wealth being signs of God's approval. The U.S. is one nation under God. Thus, devotion to one's country and its mission in the world is ultimately a religious devotion. Greatness is defined especially as financial, political, and or military strength, and this definition carries with it the conviction that both America and Americans should always enjoy and operate from a position of strength and security. Weakness is un-American. Americans want to be number one. For many, these kinds of secular strengths are seen as manifestations of power from God. Side note, by me, let me assure you, they are not. God demonstrates power on a cross, not with a sword. Another key sacred myth in American civil religion is that of militarism and sacred violence. This is the conviction that part of America's exceptional place in history is its divinely granted permission, indeed its divine mandate, to use violence, killing of native peoples, invasions, wars, etc., when peaceful means are undesirable or unsuccessful. This myth can foster a crusade mentality, ridding the world of evil, rooted in an apocalyptic dualism but without the corollary commitment to nonviolence that we find in Revelation. The myth of redemptive violence undergirds American popular culture, civil religion, nationalism, and foreign policy. And the myth of redemptive violence underwrites the belief that killing and or dying for the national interest is a sacred duty and even privilege. Service to the nation, especially military service and particularly dying for one's country, is the highest form of both civic and religious devotion. Christian references to our troops in prayer or in any other forms of disclosure are theologically inappropriate because we, the church, the Christians, do not have troops. Such talk confuses our being Christian with being American or British or whatever and manifests a profound forgetfulness about two important aspects of the church stressed in Revelation. It's international character as a worldwide assembly of people from every tribe and nation and it's peaceful, nonviolent character as a community of the Lamb. I would contend that the most alluring and dangerous deity in the United States is the omnipresent syncretistic God of nationalism mixed with Christianity light. Religious beliefs, language, and practices that are superficially Christian but infused with national myths and habits. Sadly, most of this civil religion's practitioners belong to Christian churches, which is precisely why Revelation is addressed to the seven churches, not to Babylon, to all Christians tempted by the civil cult. We should therefore be examining our ideologies and isms for manifestations of idolatry and immorality as expressed in imperialism, militarism, nationalism, racism, classism, which is the worship of the corporate self and the degradation of the corporate other, consumerism and hedonism, the worship of things and pleasure. This means we must especially examine our own Western, Northern American, and even Christian systems and values not some presumed one-world government for evidences of that which is Antichrist. Is Revelation a critique of empire? Yes, but that is not its ultimate theopolitical function. 
The fate of empire is certain. What is uncertain is the fate of those who currently participate in the cult of empire. Will the churches repent? For the churches, one main question emerges, beast or lamb? Now, I know that was quite a lot there at the end, but I I really wanted to make sure you heard what Gorman is trying to get at. And I think he puts it in spectacular terms. The idea that John is presenting us with is that all kingdoms, all empires, all nation states will fall in the end. Some of them have already fallen. Others will fall soon. They will all come to an end at the return of Christ. Only the things that cannot be shaken, according to Hebrews chapter 12, will remain. All things that were built up and structured from this world that are not following the ways of the lamb can be shaken. And John is calling people. He's calling Christians. He's calling followers of the lamb not to get sucked into that world. And in order to do it, he paints that world in gruesome terms. He wants them to see what it actually is because it's so easy not to. And his exhortation for them is this. These things will be judged in the end. I don't want you going down with them. Which type of power, rule, and great authority, how does that manifest itself in the world? In what ways does it manifest itself that have captured your heart? We sometimes are seeing the myth. Actually, we're seeing the myth of redemptive violence right now in Portland. People are distraught and riots have broken out in that city. And the solution apparently is to send in some type of a secret militia to violently and aggressively try to put down the riot. Now, this isn't an opinion. First of all, this is happening. But my opinion is not that that's a bad idea. I'm just telling you that will never work. You cannot squelch violence with greater violence. You can't do it. And I know people throw their hands up and say, what else is the president to do? I'm not here to tell you the president should do anything else. What I'm here to tell you is, since that's his decision, it's not the ways of the lamb. Which is precisely why when people throw their hands up and say, what else is he supposed to do? I know your dilemma. Worldly kingdoms don't have any other choice because they're living according to the patterns of this world. They're not being transformed in the renewal of their mind. They're not being remade into citizens built for the kingdom of God. That's because the two don't mix. So the idea, though, we're seeing it right now on live TV, is what happens when you attempt to have a bigger stick to bring about your will. And sadly, in many, many Christians' minds today, the actions of President Donald Trump are consistent with what God would want someone in that position to do in the face of riots. It's almost as if we've never read our New Testaments. It's almost as if we don't realize that riots were an actual thing in the book of Acts and that Paul was caught up in the middle of them and was beaten and left for dead. What did Paul do? had a group of Christians gather around him, pick him up, help him get dusted off, and he carried right on with his ministry, considering it a privilege to suffer the same way Jesus did. Now that needs to sit with us. It needs to sit with all of us. And in Christian churches today, we need to be talking about this. 
Because what we're seeing displayed in the world is we need to come out of, a, of an attachment to these kinds of things. And I think Gorman is right when he calls this, um, how, how did he call it? Um, oh, well, I just lost it. Something about um, Christianity light with um, nationalism. Yeah, that was it. Um, a blending of nationalism and Christianity light. And I think that that's consistent. Again, I'm not here to pick on anybody there are probably lots of things going on in any nation that God will be honored by when it is all said and done. But when you idolize one nation state over against other nation states and you use God and religion to support what you do as a nation state, we are playing precisely in to the beast from the earth's strategy. That's his game. And he's being manipulated by the dragon himself. And so, of course, if I haven't said too many things on this podcast that are just offensive unnecessarily, I'll just add one more in closing. And that is a tweet that I saw from several weeks ago by Shane Claiborne. I know some know Shane and he sometimes gets a bad rap for being a little too much of a hippie, but the guy is actually attempting to live out what he believes. And without getting into too much more detail, at least what he tweeted on the 29th of June, I think is fitting. And here's what he says. I can't imagine Jesus waving an American flag any more than I can imagine him wearing a God bless Rome shirt. Patriotism is too small. Our Bible doesn't say, for God so loved America. It says, for God so loved the world. America first is a theological heresy. Now, aside from what anybody may choose to think about him, let me go back to Donald Trump's State of the Union address in 2019. We must keep America first in our hearts. That is factually a theological heresy. For Christians to truly believe that is to deny that every tribe, language, people, and nation is where the kingdom of God grabs its citizens. It is a denial that Jesus, in fact, cares as much about other nations as he does about America. For Americans to hold that view is completely understandable. But for Christians who live in America to hold that view is absolutely unacceptable. It does not fit with the kingdom of God, that viewpoint will be destroyed in the end. I'm inviting you to join me in living now as if that will be destroyed one day. Because if the end has already come into the present with the resurrection of Jesus, then all of the things that Jesus stood for and embodied are the things that will last. Everything else will be shaken and crumble and be destroyed. I therefore want to pick up the mantle of the kinds of things that will last now so that I am more prepared and ready to enter into the age to come with Jesus at that time. That's the beast from the earth. That's the imperial cult. That's the civil religion deception and coercion of the second beast who draws people's attention to the political power and might and therefore manifestation of the God's approval and the God's authority as it exercises itself in this world. Let me assure you, 
This is a temptation for all of us. It will always be a temptation for all of us. And we need to have our hearts and our minds attuned to the ways of the Lamb, allowing Him into our hearts to investigate why it is that we are so drawn to wanting to squelch power and opposition with greater power and strength and might. And we forget, we actually forget that the Lord told Zechariah in Zechariah 4, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the church's calling. His spirit manifesting through his people, making an image for those who dwell on the earth to worship the lamb, not the beast. That's the contrast picture. That's our calling not to get sucked up into the powerful, angry, manipulative, coercive ways of the power um, of the powers that be, but instead to recognize that power and thrones and great authority have been redefined into a servant-like humble king who willingly lays down his life for his enemies. So that's all I have for you for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Again, if you have questions, comments, thoughts, and you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, just Joshua Yoder. Um, you could even get on my Instagram, the Unbinding the Bible podcast. I'd be happy for you to join there and follow along with posts that I try to make periodically about things I'm reading or just letting you know I have a new episode out. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week.